Blog Talk Radio. Baseline, you ever gonna hear?
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ravinda, with MZ and Indie Radio. Um, how, I'm hoping that everybody is not experiencing this, this nasty, chilly, cold, rainy stuff coming out of the sky like I am, but uh, I'm trying to just deal with it, and I'm hoping that everybody else is enjoying themselves on this Wednesday evening. Um, today we have a special guest, Ms. Julianne King. She is a writer and has come out with her first project, which is called Kindness of Strangers. So I'll give you a brief overview of the book, and uh, we're going to bring Julianne in so she could tell us, you know, all about her her writing um, career and style and uh, the stories behind the book. So the overview is what happens when a child's innocence and trust gets taken away by someone that they love. How do they function? How do they cope? Would they ever learn to love or trust anyone again? After several years of abuse, 16-year-old Sydney Venary finally escapes. With no one else offering to help, she accepts the assistance from a kind stranger. It is this stranger that ultimately helps Sydney realize that there really are good people in the world. She slowly begins the healing process and moves forward with her life, accepting that what has happened to her isn't her fault. Learning to love and trust again isn't easy, but it is with the kindness of strangers that she gets by. And knowing also that life comes full circle and her abuser will get what's coming to him in the end. Wow, that sounds like something really great everyone should read. I read a a little bit of it, and it was really drawing my attention. And it it was a little bit of thrill in there and a little bit of, you know, sympathy I can have knowing kids who have been through the same situations as this character in the story. So let me bring in my guest, Julianne, to um, tell us more about it. Hi, Julie. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm wonderful, and I'm glad to have you on the show, glad to be able to help you promote your book. It is something that is carrying a message that a lot of people need to understand about young women who are in situations like this. So can you uh, first give us a little background about yourself first? Um, Well, I'm a mother of three, and I work full-time. I actually am a child that was raised in foster care, and I was adopted at age 13. And um, basically, you know, the story itself is kind of a back play or a replay of my biological mother's life. Um, It's based upon her some of her details and you know some things are sensationalized and things are actually true events so um, that's pretty much about me wow now when did you start writing i've actually wrote written since i was about 10 years old um i wrote to magazines i tried to send it off to newspapers like the boston herald um boston globe i got honorable mention in the contest and the boston herald for uh, up-and-coming writers one of my poems was submitted by my English teacher, and I got the Honorable Mention Award. Um, at 15, I wrote my first novel. It was about a uh, mystery, some missing money in a dance school, and I tried to send it off to Scholastic. But because of my age, um, they rejected it, and they sent me to go to a children's writing um, course thing that they wanted me to attend to, but I wasn't able to at the time. But other than that, I've been writing my whole time since I was uh, very young, and I just briefly um, picked it back up because after a couple of years, um, I stopped because of having children and some um, personal events had happened. But I just recently picked it back up, and, and here we are. Wow. 
Now, what brought you to writing this particular story? This story, it was, I wrote the first chapter, um, the actual, you know, leaving uh, of her abusive home about two years ago. And um, it just, it, her story basically hit a nerve with me. There were so many stories in the news about children being abused, so much, you know, about girls being killed and watching all these movies and stuff where they really don't talk about the positive side of what happens after a child is abused. They always talk about the negative. Oh, a child's been murdered, a child is missing. Um, they went to drugs and alcohol and, and whatever. You hear all these movie stars who say that they were abused and they're picking up drugs and now they're going to rehab. I wanted to basically show a side where even if a child has been abused all of her life or whatever the case may be, there is some humanity in the person and that person can go beyond that abuse. So that is the reason why I strive for it. I myself um, had dealt with several abusive situations and I've made it. I'm doing well. I'm married. I have my kids, job, house. I want people to know that you can go beyond that abuse and you can develop who you really are and be positive in life and not necessarily be so negative. Right. Mm. Now, do you know any other um, people, any other young women have experienced with, you know, experiences this, this girl had in a book? I do. And I've actually wrote some, like I said, it's a compilation of my biological mother's story and other people's stories that, um, I, that I know of. And some of those people, you know, didn't actually go beyond their abuse they went from foster home to foster home, and they're now, you know, they lost their own kids. They're struggling working three jobs. They're struggling with abuse. Um, there's only, like, one story that I know of off the top of my head where, you know, the person was abused at a very young age. She went into a good foster home. They didn't adopt her, but she stayed there from the time that she was nine years old until she was 21. And, you know, she's successful, but she's never trusted a man. She never married. She never had children. But still, she was a positive person. She always she travels. She does other things. And I took some of their stories and I incorporated it in what happened in um, in the book. Okay, that's great. It's a great way to get started and to uh, really put some reality in it. Mhm. Um, so tell us about the story. Like just a brief overview. You don't want to tell everybody everything. I want to. I really really want them to go and get the book because I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell them where to get it from. And if I can have you just kind of touch on it a little bit and act like you're telling us about like a, a movie. So you just give us little tidbits and, and make us really want to, you know, see it. So go right ahead. Basically, it starts off with a bang. Um, you see the character in a situation where she's very scared and she has to get away. Uh, after that happens, she's basically homeless and has to live her life, has to depend on herself. And then um, she realizes something traumatic happens, and that is that she's pregnant. And um, she basically has to figure out how is she going to live her life, what is she going to do, how is she going to support this baby, should she give it away. All of that stuff builds up. And um, it is with that person, Irene, who is a stranger that she meets, who basically guides her and assists her, tells her where to go, takes her to the hospital to be checked, um, you know, basically guides her along the way and helps her build up uh, her self-esteem and break down those walls. She goes to school, and then um, it's after, a, you know, something traumatic happens to her life again where she feels vulnerable again, and um, another person by the name of Ian comes into her life, and he's also there to support her and help her build up her self-esteem. And ultimately, you know, things work out really well in her favor. 
uh, I don't want to give too much as to what oh, happened. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it, she basically comes out of that funk and starts her life anew and, and does really well. So hopefully that's wow. enough. <laughs> well, that's enough. And for those of you who are interested in getting the book, um, share with them where they can get it. It is available online. If you have the Kindle, it's going to be available by Amazon.com. You can also get the ebook and the 6x9 paperback available at Lulu.com. Just search for The Kindness of Strangers by J.A. Titus. And um, it will be available at Barnes & Noble and Brooks and & Taylor within the next six weeks. Okay. Now, um, you, we are, you and I had talked before. We talked about, you know, um, kids in uh, foster care, kids going through experiences and, you know, adoption. Um, you had some personal experiences in regards to adoption and foster care? I, I did, yeah. My, um, I was adopted myself. I've been in foster care. Actually, from the time that I was born, I was in foster care, and my biological mother regained custody when I was three months old. And um, then because of her instability and um, her unable to basically provide a safe environment for myself because of what happened to me, I was put back into foster care at the age of five, and I basically bounced from foster home to foster home all throughout Massachusetts, literally from Lynn, Massachusetts, to now where I am in Taunton, um, I've been bounced around. Eventually, when I turned 10, just about 11 years old, I um, moved into a home in Mansfield, and I was adopted when I was 13. They decided that they could, you know, take me on full-time, and, and I've been with them ever since, and I considered them my mom and my dad. So. Well, that's great. Now, uh, I used to work in foster care. Um, what I did was work as a guidance counselor for teenagers in in foster care who were on the verge of being dis, uh, discontinued with the services, and they would actually be on their own because they were turning 18. And unfortunately, the way the whole foster care program works, once the child turns 18, they basically are considered an adult, and they do not provide any funding for them anymore. They, I mean, they may get, um, you know, financial aid for school if they've already enrolled. Um, they may get um, ability to apply for state aid, which is just like any adult applying for welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were with some foster parents who taught them anything, then they would have had a job or been ready to just go into school and stay on campus. But the way it works, you know, there's not too many foster parents that are really in it for taking care of that kid. A lot of them are in it for the money. Exactly. Because it it provides a lot of money. Um, The agency that I worked with, they provided like $1,500 per child. And they let you have up to two children in the household. Plus, they let you have if you had enough space, they let you be a weekend parent for another child, third child. Of course, it would depend on how many of your own kids you have too. And um, a lot of times, it was just for people who just wanted to make some extra money. And you know, there's a whole stigma on foster kids. Like, you know, 
everybody will take a child in and assume they know the same things that their kids know or that they know. And what they don't realize is that a lot of these kids did not have any upbringing at all or any kind of life training or home training or anything. Um, I mean, we actually had a, a little girl who was seven and was never potty trained. Mm-hmm. So she was on small depends, you know, and little diapers because she didn't know how to go to the bathroom by herself. Like she didn't know how to do that. That's something you teach a child when they're like 18 months to two or three years old. She was seven and never been potty trained. Um, I've had experiences with, you know, little kids that I know and care who came from parents who had physically and emotionally abused them, uh, allowed other people to abuse them. Then there were kids who had mentally um, challenging issues. So there's a lot of different things that comes with a child that comes to you through foster care that you have to be prepared for. And a lot of those people were not prepared. You know, in addition to having your house ready for something like that, your emotional state needs to be prepared. You have to prepare your family members who are in the house because your kids aren't going to deal with them like, you know, their kids that they go hang out with because these are not the same type of kids. They already have, you know, feelings, bad feelings when they're moved from house to house, so they're not coming to you easy. We usually call the first three months the honeymoon session because it takes about three months for you to realize that it's going to be a child you want to keep because uh, maybe if they don't act out right away, they'll act out within a couple of months because, one, they'll either just not want to be with you and your family. They'll feel a certain kind of way because they might see a lot of closeness with your family that is not coming to them. Or, two, they might feel too close and get to be afraid that it's not going to work and just want to act up so you just say, get out of my house already. So, I mean, it's a lot of different things to take in consideration when you want to be a foster parent. And, you know, the money might be good, but you talk about a child's life and future. So you have to really be prepared for that. And it affects you and your household as well. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you as a as in foster care, can you share any of the, um, you know, any kind of situations that you had happen to you that, you know, you you can make people aware of that really do happen? Actually, I mean, I can. There was a foster home that I I went in in Tewksbury, and basically as a foster child, we already have low self-esteem. We already feel like someone else is trash. We weren't wanted, you know, nobody wants to take care of us. And in this particular home, that's exactly how I felt. They had three of their own children, biological children, um, and they had another foster child that was a baby, and obviously a baby is a lot easier to handle than a, a child that's eight or nine years years old. And um, mm-hmm. their two daughters were my age. One was 10 and one was seven. So I basically felt like the middle child, the Jan Brady of the family, you know, and I <laughs> basically felt like I had to be the maid. I had to wash dishes. I had to do laundry. They treated me, like, awfully. I was kicked in the stomach. Um and for Christmas, all I got, while their children had like hundreds of dollars spent on them, what people don't realize is foster children don't receive gifts. Whatever the foster parents receive as their stipend, they basically mm-hmm. take money out of that to get the child a gift, unless, of course, the foster parent is kind and they'll go above and beyond. But all I got that mm-hmm. Christmas was a million vanilla tape after they were exposed. and a tiny out of here. Card. I'm not kidding. Aww. I was giving them... After they were exposed as being frauds, I was given uh-huh. the tape 
for Christmas and um, a Chinese checkerboard. That's all I got that year. While their kids got the new kids on the block Barbies, they got and that's some that's some dollar store items right there that they gave yeah. you. Mm. Yep, they basically, I I felt awful watching them all open their presents. Mm-mm. And here I was, you know, by myself. I didn't have my mom, didn't have anybody else. I sat there and I cried. Um, there was lots of homes where, I, for discipline, they would burn me with a cigarette, you know. Mm. Um, That's there awful. Homes, yeah, it's it just, people don't realize the stigma that you have as a foster child, you know. I'm getting emotional. I understand it. <laughs> but, um, that's all right, honey. I mean, if it's too much for you, you don't have to go on anymore. But because um, I can share some of the experiences that I'm aware of, too, you know, things that have happened. Um, but there were good homes. I mean, I lived in a home in Linfield, which is a farm, and I lived there for mm-hmm. one year, but I, I wanted to stay. But they were getting mm-hmm. close toward their retirement, and they wanted to travel, and they wanted, you know, didn't want to be saddled down at 60 years of age. With mm-hmm. a, I was actually seven years old at the time. They didn't want to be saddled down with me, so I had to go to that home in Tuxedo. But they were wonderful there. I got up in the morning. I took care of the animals. They put me um, part of the 4-H Jericho Club. So while there are negative foster homes, there also are the positive ones as well. So I try oh, to yeah. keep hold of those good memories. I had um, a foster mother whose name was Mama B. She did everything in her power to protect me, unfortunately, the kids that were coming in and out of her home. You mentioned that there was a two- to three-child limit. In this particular mm-hmm. home that I lived in, there was five foster children and mm-hmm. one teenager. And she tried to protect me. She tried you know, to take care of all of us at the same time, but it's really hard when you're one person. You know, right. you can't take care of five children. And that was in the 80s, so maybe their rules have changed. Yeah, Hopefully before regulations. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, but yeah, those are my experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have regulations now because um, it was it would be it would it would have to have a whole lot of criteria for you to um, have more than two kids or and more than one kid even because um, you'd have to have like a, a lot of rooms in your house. They have to be a certain size. Um, they have to be equipped with certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't even work unless you're working from home because children will need you know, care and, and they will need you to come to the school for certain things. Because a lot of times you get kids who will act out all the time anyway. They're going to act out in a new school. Most kids act out in a new school anyway. They have something happen to them when most foster kids because they move from place to place to place and they, you know, they don't get to keep the same friends they developed in one place and then move them to another place. So you can't blame a kid for having some, you know, emotional issues or, or anger management issues because their life was just in such an uproar. And, you know, it was hard for some uh, foster parents to understand that because they just couldn't fathom that a parent wouldn't do certain things for their kids. And, you know, or that a parent would allow certain abuse to happen on their child. So we had so many situations. We had one little girl whose um, brother who was only four years older than her, and she was about four. And it was four years, let me see, four, four. No, he was ten years older than her. He actually used his own sister as, like, a subject of him and his friends, like, porno movies, homemade porno movies they were making. And they were just abusing and abusing that little girl. Um, when she came into foster care, um, I think she was about, 
six maybe or seven. Like she was about six or seven. By the time I met her, she was about ten. So at the time that I met her, she started going through her. her she was getting her period. Um, she actually had got it earlier because when you're abused like that, certain hormones begin a little earlier than expected, and they cause a lot of emotional uproar and physical uproar in a little girl's body. And she had a lot of issues with the family. Like she, during the time, you know, and how you, you know, hopefully guys are not listening right now. The guys that have wives, they understand what's going on. But during that time of the month, right before it happens, you start going through a lot of stuff and you're swelling up or feeling certain ways or whatever. Well, this little girl would have these feelings and couldn't control how her body was reacting to that. And she would be at times, you know, like masturbating at the table while they were having dinner or in her room or having like um, temp- temper tantrums, I mean, just really going at it. And and they had two small children in the household. And uh, the two parents just couldn't really deal with it. Like the little girl would slam the door and then the foster parent would like take the door off the hinges and put it somewhere else so she wouldn't have a door. So she got rid of her privacy. The little girl couldn't have any privacy. The the foster parent developed like a you know an attitude towards the little girl, like it was her all her fault, and just started treating her like real bad. So like you know real bad. So then they called me in to come out and counsel her, take her out and do stuff you know do stuff with her. Um, I knew what had happened to her, and like we developed a relationship somewhat. Um, so I was like a out, like an out an outing for her because all she ever could do was be with that foster parent or be with the, the technical, um, uh, I forgot what you call it. It's a technical counselor, but they call them aides or something like that now, um, the ones that have the degrees is what I say. Um, and they all they do, huh? I'm saying Not even the social. No, they weren't even called social workers. Um because a lot of, some of them had a license, some of them didn't have a complete license, you know. So it was like uh, they were just uh, designated counselors in the, in the sense of the word. And they would um, bring her in for uh, consultations with a, a doctor, a psychiatrist, um, and stuff like that. So all she had was professionals around her all the time and people that were asking dumb questions like, do you ever feel like killing yourself? And do you um, hear voices in your head? And do you feel like doing this or doing that or whatever? You know, ask some dumb questions like that. And um, so I was just trying to make her feel like she was normal. I wasn't going through all those things. So we would go hang out. We'd go to the mall. We'd go shopping. We'd go to the movies. Um, you know, we do some fun girl things like I was a big sister. And... Um, <clears throat> And then I would take her out with my kids. Now, when she was out with me and my kids, there was never, ever a problem. Like, they always got along. She was very friendly. She didn't show any kind of, like, you know, physical uh, attraction to my son, who was the same age as her, because uh, she would do that to the foster parent's husband. Um She didn't do any of that stuff when she was with me. So I guess the family unit, situation and giving her those emotions because it's all day thing was the reason why she would behave certain ways that she did at that home. So I don't, like she's probably like 18 or 19 or something like that now 
And I pray that everything went well with her because I, we kind of lost track when I left the company. But I pray that everything went well with her. But, you know, I've experienced so many different kids and what they've been through. You know, even kids who have mental challenges, um, and they put them on medications to keep them from behaving badly when they don't even need it. Because there was one little boy, he was on medication all the time because he would throw temper tantrums. But the temper tantrums were brought on because he was sitting tired of people, you know, asking him questions. <laughs> so he he would be in the, in the uh, office while everybody surrounded him asking questions, and he would just start going off and start kicking people and stuff like that and just throwing a tantrum. So they had they end up putting him in the hospital uh, in a psych ward, right? So they put him in this room, and all the only thing in the room was a TV, a, a VCR, and a uh, bed. So before he got into the room, the little boy was running all over the hospital with um, – the keys to the main doors and with the tie that belonged to the hospital administrator because he just plumb snatched it off his neck and took off. And, and so they were trying to catch him. So when they finally caught him, they put him in his room, they asked me to come in there and sit with him. So at first I was, you know, a little apprehensive, and I said, you just had this violent child in here, and now you want me to sit in a room with him, a little two-by-four room? You want me to sit in here in this little teeny tiny window nobody can see what's happening? What kind of mess is that? So that's, you know, that I'm, I only work for the hospital. I'm not even covered under your insurance for, you know, stuff like that. So they didn't have anybody they wanted to put in there. So I said, whatever. So I went in there, and the little boy was sitting down, and I had a movie with me. So I asked him, he wasn't even acting up. He was just sitting down. So I said, um, hey, you want to watch a movie? And he's like, he didn't talk. He just shook his head. So I put the movie in there, and he watched the movie. He sat there for two hours not moving, just watching the movie. He was quiet. I mean, I would ask him a question, and he would shake his head. You know, I said, did you like that? Wasn't that cool? You know, stuff like that. He would shake his head. So I'm saying this as to say, they don't. They automatically assume a child has a mental issue, and they want to give them medication, and that's not totally necessary. Sometimes a child just needs somebody to listen to them or to talk to them and find out what's wrong, and they just don't know how to express themselves because they've been thrown in the hands of so many strangers that nobody's really been with them long enough for them to trust or for them to understand. You know what I'm saying? So. It, it sometimes takes a person from the outside to come in and help that child get through and try to communicate to find out what really is going on. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just say that because people are just not aware of things that happen when it comes to foster care. Now, in your situation, exactly how many um, homes were you in? Besides residential placement, when I was at the Italian home, I was in at least between 12 to 13 foster homes. Mm. And it varied between one day, because it just didn't work out, to several years. So, yep. So now, were you um, were you writing during the time that you were in foster care? You know, like just thinking about a, a book that you might write one day. Um, other than just a journal or anything like that, but were you just thinking of, you know, I've got to write a book? When I was younger, I used to draw pictures, like my emotions were drawn instead of written because I really didn't have a very good grasp of, of the spoken language. I wasn't taught the way I was supposed to. I was actually very far behind. 
I was intelligent mm-hmm. in regards to streetwise, but I wasn't intelligent in regards to, you know, writing down um, words that I wanted to write. And I tried writing journals, um, but my foster parents would find them, and then they would, you know, accuse me of them or, or things that I would enter. So I always kept it to myself. It wasn't mm-hmm. until that I got to this last placement when I was adopted that my uh, adopted father, he was very, you know, a creative guy. Like, he was the person to encourage me. Write down your feelings. You know, what are you experiencing? One of my best friends passed away. How does that make you feel? Um, write down, you know, what you want from the heart. And that's what I did. I began writing poems initially um, based on how I was feeling at the time. I had a ninth grade teacher, Mr. Staler, who, you know, encouraged me to submit my stories to the high school uh, newspaper and to the high school. They had, like, a creative, it's called Stylist. Um, but it was like a little magazine that all the kids contributed their poems and stories. And I, I really had a great time, you know, writing down what I was feeling at the time and making it into a story and um, submitting them. You know, during my placement tests, because I had to have a lot of placement tests in regards to foster mm-hmm. homes, they, you, they test you on, you know, Rorschach tests, psychology tests, basically. Um, mm-hmm. I would tell elaborate stories, and that's one of the comments. I was reviewing my um, prior reports about me as a child and, that's one of the things that I would not stop talking. I'd see a picture, and I would just babble on for an hour on that one little picture. So I, my adopted father knew that I was creative and knew that I had the talent. He just encouraged me to actually put it to paper. Wow. Well, it's always good to have somebody somewhere in your life encourage you to do something that's going to be positive and help you through whatever you're dealing with at the time. Um, now, were you able to bond with any of the kids that you met during the time you were in foster care? I really didn't, unfortunately. Um, there was one foster home that I went to for two weeks that I actually did know them. Um, they were familiar with my biological mother, and we hit it off really well. And um, they were teenagers, though, and that was the thing that I draw to. As a child, you look for uh, attention from somebody older because you're always looking for that protection. And I bonded, sort of, I guess, with the teenage daughter that they had. But as soon as I left, we never maintained contact after that. Wow. Wow. Well, I know I had a young lady that um, was in foster care that was leaving when she when – she, uh, turn 18, and I was instrumental in helping her find work and getting her education started, and she was under the impression she was going to be able to stay at the foster parents' home after they discharged her from the program as long as she was in school and working. So she was in school, and she's working, and she's thinking she was stable and everything was good. And then the, the foster parent, like, start thinking about the fact they weren't going to get any more money with her and that they would get one less child because she was there. And, you know, and it wouldn't be anybody that was, like, uh, a teenager because of the, her being a teenager, and they didn't want her to be an influence on any um, other teenagers because of her independence. So they pretty much said she had to go. So, and it was at the last minute, so the agency didn't have a chance to, like, help find a place of her own or anything else. So I stepped in and offered to let her stay at my house because they had an extra bedroom and um, let her, you know, stay with me, continue to work uh, or find another job if she couldn't go from where we were living at and uh, continue with her education. So uh, the agency was supposed to be helping her with her education and didn't do what they were supposed to do as far as her financial aid. So she didn't get to continue school. 
and she couldn't transport herself from where we were living at to work, so she had to find another job. So, of course, my job as a counselor did not stop when I got off of work. I still had to counsel this young lady to help her find work again as an adult. So let me ask you this question. While you were in foster care, was there any time that you had anybody from any part of the agencies that were, um, you know, helpful in, in your growing up or helpful in providing you services? Not that I remember, truthfully. Um, I don't believe any one of them actually went above and beyond. Um, I, I, I don't recall. A lot of my childhood I tried to block out just because of, you know, the tumultuousness of it. It just wasn't a place or a good time. And in order to be able to get beyond it, I had to kind of let go of a lot of it. So there could have been someone that helped me. But unfortunately, a lot of the negativity overtook a lot of that positive part. So. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you advise somebody that's in foster care now, like someone that's, um, you know, a young teen, you know, say from 13 on up? I would say stay in school and always, always, you know, you don't have to necessarily depend on yourself. Open yourself up to getting constructive criticism, to better, bettering yourself. Go to school. Um, don't get into drugs. Work hard. Uh, go forward because if you go forward and you really, you know, depend on yourself and, and can make it, things will work out for you. It kind of thinks that they get dumped at 18, but, um, you know, if they really are dedicated and they do, you know, well, they'll make it out okay as they get older just to continue forward. Yeah, I would advise the same, and I would also advise um, young people to, at the minute that you're old enough to start working, um, you should start teach, getting yourself a job, even if it's just for a couple of hours a week, just so you can get used to doing something for yourself and being responsible because um, this this situation may not be a permanent situation where you would be live, living there for quite some time because, you can never uh, overestimate the care that these people show you because sometimes they may have to make a decision where they cannot keep you because they need to keep those finances coming in. So they may have to let you go. And most times you're not going to be able to go back home because that was the situation that put you in a bad place in the first place. Um, and then, of course, the agency I work for, they will go and check out whatever relative um, that the kid had still in their life to make sure their household was in good condition and, and then, you know, the situation there was fine and nobody was there to abuse that child, put them back in, you know, in what they went through before. Um, but in most times, you know, you're never going to find that great bucket of gold at the end of the rainbow because usually when one person in family is kind of messed up, a lot of the others are going to be messed up too. So, um, But, you know, they do provide, the state itself does provide services for young kids, um, especially when they're in foster care, when they're coming out, to help them with education and housing. I think at the age of 14, 15, or 16, they even let you have your own apartment now. Um, they had a lot of kids in through agency. I was with. Um, they had their own apartment. Um, it was like in a um, like a duplex or something like that. It wasn't like in a big old massive building, but it was in something that they can really monitor, and they would be able to go in and check the, how the housing looks and all that. And then they would assign a counselor with that child or that young person um, to teach them 
things about, you know, paying bills and going to work and work ethics and stuff like that. So that was a big help for a lot of those kids. I was in a part of the, the teaching part of it um, just to help them go with looking for jobs and how to do interviews and, um, you know, making sure you do your work on time and get there on time, like, you know, just critical situations that have good judgment on, stuff like that. Because these are things that if they don't have a parent teaching them, where would they be expected to learn that from? You know what I mean? Like, if you never had anyone teach you how to love, how to read, how to, you know, deal with a lot of people at the same time or deal with somebody's emotional upsets, whatever, if you never taught how to deal with those things, how the heck would somebody expect you to know what to do? Right. So now in your situation, um, did you ever meet anybody else that had decided to write a book about what it is that they wanted to talk about, you know, what they went through in, in being in, in that care? No, not so I thought that it was, you know, a great idea to actually bring attention to this, this subject matter because not so many people know about what happens to all, you know, children in this situation. So I wanted it in my next book as well, I'm, I'm discussing foster care. So I want people to realize that this happens and these people are out there and, you know, to help if they can. You, you, you're a stranger, yes, but you've got to go out there. But um, nobody I know in particular has read or written anything somewhere. Hmm. Now, um, did it take you long to, you know, kind of get yourself together with your own life once you became an adult? You know, because I know you probably had a lot of, you know, things that were affecting you in your everyday life based on what situations you were in when you were in foster care. Um, did you go to anyone for counseling or anything like that? I actually had counseling forced down my throat, and that's one of the things that I will say that I could not stand. And like you mentioned before, all they were asking me was, do I want to commit suicide? Um, what is the sexual abuse that happened to you? What does that mean to you? And then I want to rehash what happened to me when I was five years old. And I tried to kept trying to explain to them, I don't remember. I don't want to remember. Stop bringing it up. Let's focus for the future. I want to know, you know, am I going to be a, a good adult? Am I a good person? I don't want to go back to the past. Let's talk about the future. And that's all they wanted to do. So I fought against going to um, counseling. And my, my adopted mother, you know, she was very supportive. Like, you need to go. You need to talk about your feelings. You're a teenager. Teenagers, whether you've been abused or not, need to go to counseling just to discuss what's happening to them as a teenager. So I, you know, just did what I had to do. And then when I think when I was 16, my adopted father finally was like, you know what, this is just basically a waste of time. She's doing well. She's doing good in school. She's adjusting. She doesn't have to go if she doesn't want to. And I basically stressed that to my counselor as well. I'm like, I don't want to be here. Um, I don't feel like I need to. I use writing as my way of escape so or my way of coping. And that's basically what they said. But my whole, I was just re reviewing, like I said, a bunch of records and, Basically, as a child, like I, I always complied to what they made me do and answer all the questions that they asked me, but it really bothered me that they kept on wanting to talk about the past because mm -hmm. you can't really go forward without, you know, truly getting beyond your past, but you can't get beyond the past without moving forward. So it's kind of like a catch-22. Yeah, I know. I understand that. And, and um, then I also had, like, I had some problems with some of the medical psychiatrists and all that there and myself because of the questions that, you know, like the some of the things that they would ask or, you know, like 
it would just it would be crazy to me. But um, I know that after a while, you ask a child all these different questions, um, they're going to start having that in their head anyway. They're going to know how to 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 work you and manipulate you because those, some of the kids that we dealt with, um, whenever they were like not able to have their way about something, they could say something like, "I want to kill myself." Or they'll go and, and touch something they're not supposed to be touching and said, it was so-and-so who did it. They're talking about like their invisible friend. Mm-hmm. And so they would, they would give them ammunition to use, and you can't help anybody if you give them ammunition to use to, you know, to, to uh, make them be able to do what they want to do or whatever. They'll use that against the person. And a lot of them would use that against the, the, the uh, counselors that came over. They would just say, you know, you, I'll make you get, lose your job or stuff like that. You know, I mean, there will be things that they would say because they put that in their hands. And if you deal with them on a different level, you know, like from a social level, from a outsider's level, you know, like don't treat them like you're some kind of psychiatrist coming in there to pick their brains. You just talk to them and listen to them and find out what, what's going on. And usually that's what I always did. And I, I wouldn't even always have to ask anything. They would just come and tell me. That's the best and, approach, in my opinion. That's exactly what you want to do. You want mm-hmm. to basically encourage them to tell you what they're feeling, what's going on in their head. And I, what you were mentioning before about manipulation, I saw that everywhere when I was at the Italian home. Um, there was kids that just because they wanted to get ice cream and stay up late at night, they would pretend that they could hear voices in their head. So mm-hmm. the doctors would say, okay, well, they need to eat an EEG or whatever it is, the brain scan. So the kids would be like, ha-ha, I'm getting ice cream and I get to stay up until 1 o'clock in the morning. And you can't, you know, they would rub it in your face. And that, that mm-hmm. would fuel other kids in the building to say, oh, well, I have, I hear voices in my head too. You know, I saw mm-hmm. that all the time. Or they would try to cut themselves with their fork, things like that. Nation. And then all the, the, the staff would um, take away the silverware. We had to use plastic silverware because some mm-hmm. kids just like, wanted attention and tried to, you know, <laughs> cut his wrist with the fork. So. <laughs> I know, it happens a lot. And, um you know, and then I do I do know some kids that went back into the same atmosphere that they were in prior to being in foster care, and just pretty much their lives are ruined. And I know one young man, I was doing my best to try to help counsel him. Um, he just wasn't getting it, and it was like the foster parents had him since he was a young child. So I would have thought there would have been some kind of change in him over those next seven years, and. You know, it, it, there was no change, and they didn't teach him anything. So he had no idea what he needed to do to go out there and take care of himself. So he was very afraid. I'm sure he was. He was just trying to hide it. But um, I, they asked me to put him on a, a, a scare straight type of adventure. <laughs> I had to take him to well, we lived in New Jersey, but I had to take, we lived, the community that he lived in was this beautiful suburb. You know, you can just put your stuff outside. Nobody's going to take them. Um, you just have trees and grass and people cutting their lawns and the newspaper boy. I mean, like a cookie cutter atmosphere, right? Uh, and the kid didn't come from anything like that by any means. It came from the roughest of rough neighborhoods and everything. So to be there growing up for seven years and all that, you know, that's all he knew. So I had to show him the reality of where he would actually be if he didn't go and get himself a job and do what he had to do because he only had about eight months left to be in the program. So I took him 
downtown Philadelphia where 13th and Market, um, I think it was 13th Market or Lucas, something like that, where they have um, uh, a food bank for the homeless. And it will be a line around the block of people standing in line to eat. And then they would also have um, nearby um, refrigerator boxes that the homeless people lived in. And they were lined up like little condos. And they had all their stuff in there and everything. So I would tell them, I would drive past there all slow, and I would say, you know, um, if you don't get yourself a job and get yourself together or get enrolled in school or something, that's going to be one of, that's going to be where you're going to live at. I told them, that's going to see, you need to pick one of those out, like you like picking out an apartment. And that's where you're going to live at. And I said, and that's the line you're going to stand in. You don't get to, you don't get to go to the supermarket. You get in that line, and you stand there with all those guys to wait for your food. And you're only going to get to eat that food once. There's no seconds in this. And I just had to give it to them straight, you know, because once they put you out and you're not going to get any state aid, you're just really out there. So instead of listening, this young man did something that caused himself to have to go to jail, and I think he was in there for a while, but I know a lot of kids do that to make themselves to have to go to jail because they don't want to be on the street. The institutionalized, the fear takes yeah. over is what they're comfortable with. Same thing with the girls that are abused. They, they're comfortable in that environment for some strange, absurd reason, so as soon as they're free, they go right back to it, and they... they they may hate it, but it's what they're comfortable with, and they just go back. I know. And speaking of young girls, there were a lot of young girls who they had been sexually abused and physically abused and emotionally abused by parents, by friends of parents, by other relatives and things like that. And then they were in foster care, and they were doing fine, but then, you know, it's just in them to be abused or it's just in them to to feel like that's love, and then they're not getting it anymore. they got to go out and get it. So I know a lot of them that went out and ended up practically being prostitutes because they got connected with some some guy, some, and it's always an older man, like somebody in their uh, 30s or something, with a little teenage girl or a young girl that's like 18 or whatever, got her out there on the street, or pimping her out to his friends or whatever. So this girl just ends up in this lifestyle. She might have a bunch of kids or she might just not have any kids or whatever. But it's just, it's an awful thing that happens. And it's, and it's, if you're not going to be a parent of somebody and that child's going to a foster parent, then that foster parent has to take the place of the parent and be the one to guide that child. And even if it isn't their child, it shouldn't matter because that's the responsibility you decided to take and raising somebody else's child, and you have to think about this whole entire child's future. Just like with those parents you had, the elderly ones, um, somebody should have stepped in and told them, "You can't. This isn't like a vacation for this child. You know, right. this child doesn't expect to be here for only a couple of weeks or whatever. This is a lifetime choice. So most kids want to stay where they are if they if they enjoy it." So if this child is enjoying it, you know, you don't just put them back into a state of mind where they're just going to be all messed up now. They, you know, they feel already like they got kicked out. Then you're going to kick them out again because you want to go and do something else. But you know you was going to do that. You don't just all of a sudden decide you want to retire and go travel the world or whatever. So, 
you know, these are things that people have to think about when they become foster parents. It's the same thing as becoming a parent. You have a lot to think about before you become a parent. Right. Responsibility is always there. And people have these children are not animals, and they can't just go right back to the shelter. This is a lifetime commitment, you know. It is. It is, definitely. Well, you know, I appreciate you um, writing this book and sharing your personal experience and emotion, um, you know, to the audience and to the people who will be reading your book. So once again, can you tell them where they can find the book? Absolutely. You can get the Kindle version on Amazon.com, and you can get the 6.9 paperback and the ebook from Lulu, L-U-L-U.com, and it will be available on Brooks and & Taylor and Barnes & Noble within six weeks. Great. Now, uh, I do have some other associates with um, shows that are based on book um, book writing and um, some other things. They even have some publishers that um, join in on the show. And uh, I would love to help you in getting this out and get the word out by just forwarding some information over to them so that they can invite you on to be a guest. Excellent, excellent. I really appreciate that. Yeah, because it's it's a lot of them on there, and um, I'm sure that they would feel the same way that I felt about the story itself, you know, and just trying to get it out there because there's not too many out there that are really getting the word out. I mean, it's it's one thing to write about it; it's another thing to really get people to understand something by what you write. So, and then um. You know, you might be able to find some other people who are publishers or editors or whoever can help you with, you know, some of the needs that you may have with completing this or getting this booked into another um, form, you know, and, mm-hmm. and and wider range so that, you know, you can get more readers, maybe get in a book club or something like that. So once I send them out, you know, if you like, I can actually – schedule you or we can get Rob to help schedule you for some of these interviews. I can just give him the contact people and uh, we can take it from there. Sure, absolutely. Whatever is easiest for you. Um, I do appreciate the time. This is excellent. Thank you very, very much. Well, I hope you weren't too nervous and I hope that um, you felt like we were having like a little chit-chat with some tea. (laughs) (laughs) I need the tea right now too. And I, I did have one last question to ask you. What what did you learn from your experience that you've um, passed on to your own children? Well, one thing is that I love them, like, with all my heart. And um, I'm there to protect them. I'm going to raise them the best way that I can, give them opportunities, hopefully, that I never got to experience because I never got to really have that, you know, from a child, from a, that love that a mother can give to their child. So I tell them every day that I love them, I give them hugs and kisses, and um, we're very close. So that's one thing I want them to know, that they're wanted, and I would never give them away. That's great. Now, did you um, find some healing when you were able to have this relationship with your husband and build your family like this? Did it help you to heal? It really did, yeah, because I've always wanted to be a mother as a child, you know, playing dolls and Barbies and stuff, I always grew toward wanting to have, you know, hundreds of children if I could, and I've always wanted (laughs) to be a foster mother so that I can give back to, you know, the people who have helped me. I want to let these kids know that they can make it and they can go forward, and I want my kids to strive for the best. 
And the only way they're going to be able to do that is if I encourage them, my husband encourages them, and we all, as a family, move forward. So hopefully they'll, they'll be great, upstanding citizens when they get to be adults. <laughs> and that's wonderful. And I'm going to pray for you that that happens for you and that, you know, you continue to be blessed. And I'll be sure to get all that information out for you as well. Um, I'll email it to you or I'll give it to you on Facebook. And once again, I want to thank you for being such a great guest. And um, I do love you. And I want to pass this love to you through the phone. And and now that I know that somebody else was successful, you know, because I do miss the fact that I haven't seen those kids in so long. I worry about them all the time. But uh, when I meet people like you that have been through, you know, the ringer like they have, then I know that a lot of them probably are still doing great and probably doing good as you. So um, I'm just grateful for that. And, you know, I just keep everybody in my prayers. And I'm going to keep you in there too. Thank you very, very much. Sure, sweetie. And um, so you have a great evening. Take care of those little beautiful babies. And I want to thank my listening audience and anybody that was in the chat room for you know, visiting us again, and we will have another show on on Friday, and then we'll see you after Friday. Sometime next week we'll be having um, some directors, and we're going to have some more musical guests, and um, everybody, please make sure you download the show after it's over. You can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash MZN Indie Radio, um, and if you want to call in on uh, Friday, the number uh, 347-237-5050. Thank you, and good night. What are you searching for? Are you searching for gold? Look above the clouds. Look beyond your mind, beyond your soul. Search for that place. Feed. Feed on the food of soul. Renew your mind.